Welcome to the Stay Free Forever podcast, episode number two. My name is Clifford Fuel, host of the podcast that aims to help you survive and thrive, no matter what life throws your way, especially if you've been in trouble with the law, incarcerated, or simply don't want those things to happen to you or to someone you care about. Today, we are joined by a young man from small town Wyoming, who also lived on the Wind River Indian Reservation. 31-year-old Russell Heba was born in Lander and attended schools across the Cowboy State as he split time, along with two brothers and two sisters, between his parents' separate households in Lander, Casper, and the reservation village of Ethity. I first met Russell in 2020 when he called to say his tribal probation officer had assigned him to the Stay Free Forever Personal Responsibility Course. A year later, the district judge in Riverton referred Russell to my domestic violence course. Today, we'll dive a little deeper into those situations and learn how Russell came to be the man he is today. Welcome to the Stay Free Forever podcast, Russell Heba. Thanks, Cliff. It's good to be on here. Appreciate it. Well, I appreciate the fact that you're taking time to do this. I've been very impressed with our conversations going back a couple of years. Even though you were assigned two courses a year apart, each time you seem to take a lot of accountability, which is one thing that made you stand out. And I detected in your voice as you were talking to me both times, a real desire to change. I appreciate your willingness to share your story because I think others can benefit from it. But before we get to all that, let me ask you, since you've lived part of your life on the reservation, which tribe do you call yours? I am part of the Eastern Shoshone tribe. I'm an enrolled Eastern Shoshone tribe member. I don't know their ways too much. My father, he's part of the Northern Arapaho tribe, and I've grown up that way. I know the Arapaho way more than I do the Shoshone way. Since you've lived in Wyoming all your life, what do you like best about Wyoming? I would say the mountain range. The Wind River mountain range probably my favorite part. It's the lakes up on the Wind Rivers, up on the tops, anywhere in them timbers. There I like to go cut wood during the summer times and I like to do a lot of labor stuff, so and something that's helping me benefit or helping somebody else benefit. I know you've got a family. Do you take them up? Yeah, every now and then the wife and the kids will come up. We'll go up and go fishing at Moccasin. Been a couple of years since we've had time to go on a camping trip. You know, I've been dealing with some things the past couple of years, getting life back on track. We're hoping to get back into it soon. You've been doing farm and ranch work your whole life, but recently you came into a bunch of farm and ranch equipment, and how did that change your life? Yeah, my, my grandfather, he was a horseman. He owned horses all his life, and he had passed away here a couple of years ago. I've always been pretty close to him, and he taught me a lot around the ranch and around the horses and around the equipment, everything that he owned. I didn't necessarily come into it myself, but I'm the only one out of the family that really knows what's going on and what the horses need how things uh, worked and how my grandpa ran things. So I've been doing my best to keep it steady the way he had it before he left. It's been a journey. It definitely has been a journey. Since you're really experienced with horses and you said that breaking horses is something that you like to do, what's involved in getting a, an untamed horse to be a tame horse? Patience. A lot of patience, a lot of groundwork. I can't emphasize enough how patience is a big virtue in calming a horse. I mean, there's different ways. I learned from my father. He is probably one of the best horse trainers I've ever witnessed in my time. And my grandfather, he had a way with horses. 
it seemed like he could speak to a horse without even putting any energy into it and the horses knew so i took a lot from that and now when i work with a horse you know i feel that energy where it works you know the patience self-obedience it's, it's all in a person self-obedience what do you mean by that restraint takes a lot to become a patient person i used to never be very patient i would get frustrated with a horse if it wasn't doing what i wanted it to do over the years with all the things that i put myself through um, dealing with alcohol and drugs as well my addiction and the hard times patience became one of my strong suits it's not subtle you know i'm just gonna wake up one morning and you know i got patience i got all the patience in the world tell me about your dad and how that relationship has gone over the span of your life my father and I, you know, I've always been somewhat close to him when he could be around. When I say could be around, he did suffer from alcoholism and addiction problems as well. Spent a lot of my childhood drinking or incarcerated from what I remember. My dad and I have always had a pretty close bond. We've always been close, you know, I've always been intrigued with his way of horses and the way he carried himself when he was sober. So that was a lot of motivation for me to be be a be a better father or not try I'm not in competition with my father but you know I'd, I'd like to give my kids a better life than I was given like I say he's he's a pretty good horseman but he did suffer from a lot of alcoholism and his own issues and he's around him and I our relationship isn't the closest anymore like it used to be we uh we've had our turmoil over the years and I just we don't see eye to eye anymore ever since um, I sobered up and you know I got my life back on track I just don't agree with the way he carries himself and the things he was still doing so I don't know it just came a point where I uh I just had to I don't know it didn't so much give up but you know just distance myself from it so it didn't tear me apart. I understand that. And I think a lot of people will. And I appreciate your saying so, because it's one of the most difficult things to do in gaining sobriety and control of one's life is having to say goodbye to relationships that aren't healthy. So I, I commend you for doing so. Tell me about your mom. My mother, she was an amazing person. She passed away when I was 17 in 2009. She was a good mother. She took care of me and my sister as much as she could as well. But she, too, suffered from alcoholism and drug problems. Um, I spent a lot of my my younger childhood days watching my mom drink and party. And I've seen some pretty scary situations she's been in from being in the hospital and just from drinking and drugging too much, you know, binging. So a lot of that a lot of my childhood just it consisted of my mother and my father drinking so i seen a lot I had to put up with a lot and um i had to experience it later on you know but my mother was a good person her and i were very close i was attached to her pretty good um it was a big it was a big loss for me when she did pass away she died from heart failure and i think all the drugs and alcohol is what was a big factor in her death you know it just led up to it but prior to her when she passed away she's been she sobered up for i, I want to say it was only going on two to three years from everything those last couple of years when she sobered up she was she was very determined she was determined to be sober and she wanted to be there for her grandkids you know she spoke to me her and i spoke a lot we we spoke on different levels and a mother and a son but uh she really wanted to be part of her grandkids' lives, and she got to meet one of my sisters, her oldest, when he was a baby. I don't know, he probably won't remember her, but 
she got to experience that. And I do remember before, you know, when she got onto that red road, she, uh, she really wanted to use her story. She really wanted to use her struggles and the things that she did to help other people. She wanted to be a drug and alcohol counselor at one point in time, but that time never came for her. Red road. What is that? This red road to Wellbriety book. It's more of a kind of like the AA book of uh, the Native American side. It's, you know, you hear Native Americans say getting on that red road. It's just, you know, getting on that sobriety road and staying on that road. Reminds me a lot of the AA book. I've done a lot of AA, so it's a pretty good one. I recommend people getting into it. Well, you had a good childhood. It was fraught with turmoil. Was there an adult in your life or two who were steadying influences for you? My dad's mother, my grandmother, Sharon Bell, was there for a lot of my times when, uh, you know, the parents were out drinking or drugging or were in jail. I got sent to my grandma Sharon's place. and She pretty much, you know, raised me. Her and my auntie Shauna were always there for me. And my mom's sister as well, Karen, used to take me in from time to time and take care of me. Mainly my grandma Sharon. When I was about fourth grade, I moved to my dad's in Lander. So I started going to school there. And after that, um, I think uh, my dad hit a rough patch once again, went to jail and was incarcerated for a while. So I ended up with my grandmother. And from there, I got so comfortable in Lander. I, I stayed with her and I always wanted to be with her. I didn't, didn't want to go stay with dad or mom anymore. So I stayed with her most of the time. When you were a teenager and you had a lot more freedom, is that when you started dabbling in alcohol and drugs? I seen my parents going through so much from my childhood. I didn't want to go down that road. So a lot of my younger teenager years, I was trying to make the right choices. You know, my, my grandma, she would punish me if I you know, made wrong choices. And I knew that conscience was there. But, you know, those influences outside of the home, friends and people you hang out with is where those influence started to come along. And, you know, I was 14. I remember I first got drunk with one of my buddies and ended up going home and I, I got away with it. So I think that was where it all started. You know, more of it started coming. So I was a fairly good child until my mother passed away. I think it was my mother's passing where my breakaway point where everything just kind of gave in. I just let everything go. Understandable. When was your first brush with the law? I was driving to town and I got pulled over going into Lander. And apparently I had a, a warrant for an old fine that I hadn't paid. The officer arrested me, took me into custody. And when I got to the jail, I had forgot that I had a bag of weed in my pocket. And this possession charge made everything that much worse. I think that's where it was all started. You know, everything just went downhill from there Every Every bad decision I was making, I was being punished for it, it felt like. <laughs> when we first met, when you called me in, in March of 2020 with the assignment of taking a personal responsibility course, why did that happen? That happened because of a charge I picked up here on the reservation. I had taken the BIA and um, a lot of the officers on a wild goose chase. I ended up getting 25 charges from that one. I was very intoxicated. That all stemmed off of a, a day of ice fishing. There was a wagon full of alcohol. And, um, you know, one thing led to another. I was sitting in a drunk tank, had a stack of charges. I was terrified. I thought maybe I was going to go to prison. It all led into where I'm at today. And I remember you telling me a less detailed version of that story when we first talked back in 2020. 
And you took the course seriously, and uh, you really seemed to have a change of heart. After the evading arrest, the uh, high-speed chase, seven months straight in jail in Basin, Wyoming. What was that stretch like? Yes. Oh, this was a life-changing moment for me, actually, because before I got thrown in jail, that's when I got into drugs pretty heavy. That's when I got into the meth. I thought I was going to die at this point. I, I really thought the way I was running around, something was going to get me. And I was going to either go to prison or end up dead. So that seven months of jail time really was was my life-saving moment. How so? I was just spiritual, you know. I I know my native ways and um, the way we do things. I was never taught the Bible or I'm not baptized. But I met a group of fellers up there. They, these guys are all, you know, going to prison for multiple charges. You're doing 15, 20, 25 years. And Basin is a federal holding facility. So they're, they're just waiting court dates right, to go to prison. They did a Bible study. And one day on October 18th, actually my birthday, one of the guys came up to me and he asked me what my beliefs were. Pretty much told him what I just told you. You know, I'm spiritual. I know my Native American ways. You know, I pray. I believe in our creator. He asked me if I believed in Jesus Christ. And, you know, I never, before I went to jail, I, I was on this drug escapade. I was really heavily into meth. And I remember making making jokes with some friends that, you know, Jesus wasn't. I was, I was really putting Jesus down in a way. Like, I didn't believe him. And I remember that. And at that point, you know, everything I was doing, I was, I had nothing but time on it, so I decided to take that Bible and take what they wanted to show me. They um, basically made me a believer that day. That changed my life. There was a pastor that came to the jail every week. And just his his sermons and the way he spoke about God just made me believe myself so much that I changed my life for better. That belief that Jesus Christ, the Christian way, brought me to where I am today. But then a year later, uh, I was referred by the judge in Riverton to give you a uh, domestic violence course. Walk us through that, please. I was sober for a year and a half. Me and my wife were doing very well after I got out of jail that time. But we started drinking again. I thought that I could be responsible drinker. You know, I, I wasn't abusive. I wasn't a mean drunk. I don't know what happened. We went to a softball game one night and I had consumed quite a bit of alcohol. And when we left, we went to the bar. I remember sitting at the bar and I had shots lined up. And that's all I remember after that. Um, after that, we went home. I I don't remember the ride home. I remember getting home and I don't remember what flipped my switch. But I had put my hands on my wife and things just turned out of control from there. She had called the cops on me. I went to jail that night and I was charged with domestic violence and I never wanted to be in that situation and to be without my family again and to have nothing you know and to have put my my wife through the pain and whatever ever else happened through that it just it just wasn't it wasn't comfortable I didn't like it one bit what did it take for your wife to to uh to see that your change was um, more serious than a, oh my God, I really screwed up. I have to get her back. So I have someone to lean on. Well, it took a lot of actions. It took a lot of actually doing 
what I said I was going to do. It took a lot for uh, convincing of my wife to actually, you know, get me bonded out and um, take me back after that. It was a rough situation I had put my wife and my kids through. But while I was in jail, um, they had the they give you iPads so you can you can basically text, you know, to the outside world. I mean, it's not like instant on demand, but we were having a conversation and, you know, I felt horrible for the things that I did. And she had every right to leave me. She had every right to just go and start a new life. And I knew that, you know, I was I was fearful that I was about to lose my family and a lot of my people, they like to take pledges, you know, and, but with me, I, I'm more heartfelt and I'd rather, I'd rather be about it rather than just talk about it. So in my mind, I kept telling myself, well, what's, what's going to make this right? What's going to, what's really going to convince her that it's got to be something huge, you know, it's got to be, it can't just be words that I'm telling her that I'm going to sober up and I'll never do it again because people say that, simply say that, but they go back on that, you know, they forget about it. So for me, I had to pick something that was going to stick with me every day and that it was so big that it had to be realistic, you know. So the pledge was out of question. Um, I just, I don't believe in the pledges, you know, I'd rather make you know with myself and creator and whatever else you know and, and just be about it you know so i told her i i, I would stay sober until at least my daughter is 18 years old until she's out of high school my youngest daughter so that way you know any of my kids you know they'll never ever have to experience me not being at school for them not being at their games not waking up with them in the morning you know i had to make it that extreme to where she believed me as well when I told her and I've been going on almost two years sober now ever since then I've been sober and life has been great her and I's relationship has been the most growing and loving we have learned to overcome our obstacles and our arguments it's just been amazing you know I I told her there's a part in the Bible where uh, Lazarus dies and Jesus brings him back to life. You know, the family was upset. They were sad that Lazarus died and they wanted Jesus to bring him back to life. You know, I told her everything that, you know, everything that happened that night, I got that domestic violence may have had to happen because, you know, some things have to die to be brought back to life. And that story just stuck with me. So just made a lot of sense and things are just like I said have been amazing if a nephew or niece or one of your kids came to you and said I'm afraid I'm going down this path all my friends want to party and I know you have experience what advice would you give them oh that's a tough one I mean I could sit there for hours and you know try to convince them not to but my biggest thing there is uh it's hard to make choices around here i mean i've i see my nephews i see nieces you know i see my family younger ones going through this and i wish they would come to me my biggest thing would be all i can say is make the right choice we all know right and wrong but actually being about doing right is the biggest thing it's like just putting that in your head and knowing that that drink or going out with your friends is the wrong thing to do. So just don't do it. You know, there's rewards from doing things like that. It takes time.
to this day still experience people who try to shame you into going back to your old ways. True? Yeah, yeah, it is very, very true. Um, I do have family. One of my sisters tries to do it to me very often. Not so much. She don't do it anymore. She's starting to be more on the supportive side now that she's seeing everything that I have overcome and I have accomplished in the past couple of years. But they do, you know, they look down on you seeing that you're sober and it's like it's uh like it's it's frowned upon sometimes it seems like around here like they'd rather you be in the mix and partying and drinking with them rather than seeing somebody do well for themselves making that choice every day not to follow the crowd you think you're better than us huh russell oh yeah that's exactly how it is so and you know it's at this point i really don't even care uh they come at me like that. Um, if it, if it, if me being sober makes me better than them, then yes, 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 I'm very much better than you. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. As you know, there are three parts to this podcast, and the second part is I'm going to read from a workbook that another student has completed. And one of the answers that I find interesting or compelling, and then I'd like to get your thoughts on it as well, okay? Okay. This happens to be the domestic violence workbook, not yours. (laughs) Mine was online. It was. (laughs) In the back, there's a student evaluation and a coach evaluation. And the coach had this to say about the course. I think it was thorough, engaging, and empowering. And then the student said, It had its ups and downs, but was informative and helpful. I feel it's really important to understand the generational abuse trauma and work to stop the cycle. What do you think about those two statements? Very strong statements. The students' overlook of it was very empowering. The awareness that that book gave me and my wife was pretty amazing to know because, like I said, I'm not an abusive person and just to know that part of it could have gotten worse. So being able to make myself aware and my wife also being aware of what's going on because it, it could be, it's a two-way street, you know, it can, it's not just the woman sometimes, it's the man, and it's not just the man sometimes, it could be the woman. And the cycle of abuse also includes the cycle of uh, substance abuse, which um, to your credit, um, I know you've stopped for long periods before, but this time, it seems to me you just may well have broken that chain that goes back to your parents and to their parents and to their parents before them. Yes? Yes. That's uh, my biggest thing I'm trying to do, Cliff, is uh, I'm trying to break that, that chain. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to change something here. Uh, my, my kids don't need to see this, and neither does my nephews uh, or my nieces or any other younger ones on. The third part of this is where we each share a passage or a quote that we like. Have you got something ready? And who would you like to go first? Yeah, I do. I can read mine. This is a devotional book. It's called uh, Jesus Listens by Sarah Young. 
I read from this just about every day. So just to, just to keep me going. And yesterday's kind of fell in line with everything we're doing here. So I'd like to read this here. It's called Lord of Peace. When something in my life or thoughts makes me anxious, I need to come to you and talk with you about it. So I come boldly into your presence today, bringing you my prayer and petition my thanksgiving. Lord, I thank you for this opportunity to trust you more. The lessons of trust you send me are usually wrapped in difficulties, but I've learned that their benefits far outweigh the cost. You have taught me that well-developed trust brings many blessings, not the least of which is your peace. Your word assures me you will keep me in perfect peace to the extent that my mind is stayed on you and trusting in you. The world has it all wrong, proclaiming that peace is the result of having enough money, possessions, insurance, and security systems. Thankfully, your peace is such an all-encompassing gift that is independent of circumstances. I'm learning that no matter how much I may lose, I am rich indeed if I gain your perfect peace. Please help me trust you enough to receive this glorious gift. That was very well read, well said, and that theme of trust keeps coming back, doesn't it? Yeah, and this whole opportunity, the podcast, I've always wanted to tell my story. I've always wanted, you know, to help the next addict or an alcoholic, somebody maybe just needs to just to hear the hope that there is out there. You know, I've turned my life around, so I trust in every day and whatever it is that the difficulties that come every day, you know, there's, there's rewards to it, whatever cost, you know, there's, there's very, it's beneficial somewhere down the road. I just have that faith. And that right now I've never been at peace of peace, so much peace in my life that everything is just working out. I, I really believe that comes from trusting in God and creator and everything I've been doing, putting in the hard work, just staying humble and staying sober and, doing what's right the next day and may it ever be thus what i'd like to share with you russell is a, a quote that uh, has recently been attributed to a man named ray Kroc, who was the one who bought the mcdonald's brothers out and started taking mcdonald's the restaurants worldwide uh, became a very wealthy very famous very outspoken man they even made a movie about him starring michael keaton called the founder in looking up this quote i found that actually it was originally said by president calvin coolidge he is spot on with this quote. Tell me if you agree. Nothing in the world can take the place of persistence. Talent will not. Nothing is more common than unsuccessful people with talent. Genius will not. Unrewarded genius is almost a proverb. Education will not. The world is full of educated derelicts. Persistence and determination alone are omnipotent. All powerful, very strong. I like it. It's just, you know, getting up every day. And even if it's doing the same thing every day, knowing that, you know, there's rewards going to come from it. Consistency is my, my main thing right now is staying on top of everything. If I let off, you know, I give the devil an inch. He's going to get a mile on me. So I stay consistent and persistent every day. I get that that's true. And I look forward to talking to you in another 18 years and seeing how your life and your family have flourished. Thank you, Russell, for being on the podcast.
Thank you, Cliff. podcast is recorded and produced by Clifford Fuel, owner of Stay Free Forever LLC, a Colorado and Wyoming company. Stay Free Forever provides adult and youth life skills courses via both e-learning and mailed workbooks, plus Zoom classes for any age group. Our theme music was composed and performed by James Benjamin Fuel. Editing and technical assistance are provided by Mary Tulin. My name is Molly Moore. For more information, go to stayfreeforever.com or email Clifford at stayfreeforever.com.